Godfrey and I were on tour in the UK once, and one night I preached a message and used the following illustration. Paul and Silas are in prison, and at midnight, Paul turns to Silas and says, hey, have you heard that new Jesus Culture song, the one everybody's singing right now? I don't know what he did, but anyhow, Paul turns to Silas, says, let's sing something. Silas says, okay. They didn't sit there and criticize the guards that had beat them unjustly. They didn't criticize the circumstances that they were in in this nasty prison. Instead, they decided to worship God, a legit expression of worship from the heart of people who had every right to be offended. And you know the story. If you've been to Sunday school, suddenly there's an earthquake and the chains fall off and the doors are open. And that's an amazing part of the story, but to me it's not the biggest miracle of all. The biggest miracle of all actually happens when the chains and the doors don't just fall off and open for Paul and Silas. They fall off of everybody. It's such an offensive story when you think about it, because what what would be in a prison here? You, you got prisoners, right? It's not a trick question. You got rapists and thieves and murderers and all kinds of people who've done some really, really bad things. And I think it would probably be far more religiously convenient, especially if we could like tell the story in, in modern churches. As an evangelistic tool, it'd be great if we could say that the chains fell off of Paul and Silas. The doors opened for Paul and Silas as a testimony to all the pagans on how God treats people who do it right. But that's not the way the story goes. The grace of God goes a little crazy and next thing you know the doors are open on on everybody's cell and the chains fall off of everybody the most remarkable reaction happens in this moment and that is that nobody moves the philippian jailer comes running in sees the condition of the of the jail and goes man i'm, I'm just going to end my life he's he's just going to check out of the job he's going to check out of life and everything and and paul says don't do that we're all here. Fascinating phrase. Why in the world would these people who were guilty, who who had a chance to suddenly get rid of all their chains, have all the doors open, why didn't they run out into freedom? Well, the last line of the song says why. Because freedom just ran into them. Godfrey heard that illustration, and as he does often, got inspired to write a song about it. 
And so that was the song that came out. There's a beautifully produced, uh, rocking full band rendition of the song on Godfrey's album, Intrinsically Linked. And I highly recommend you check it out. It's a very different sound from any other worship sound out today. Godfrey is just that way. But he went back to the hotel room, and thankfully his room was across from mine, not right next door, because I would have spent all night listening to him write this song. The next morning he came out and presented the song that he had written. And Godfrey sang all the bits and all the parts. And and this was the rough demo that has never seen the light of day until just now. It's just a portion of the song, but I like this version. And this is the reason I like it. It's got a real Beatles sound to it, doesn't it? It kind of has a cool vibe. Just a single guitar in the background and layers of Godfrey's vocals harmonizing. I didn't run to freedom. Freedom ran into me. That's kind of what I want to talk to you a little bit about today. Managing our freedom. Do you know that God's given you the freedom to not believe? Not only that, but God seems to have set up scenarios in place that actually make it really easy for us not to believe. I know that that seems crazy, but it answers the question, why do people not believe? Well, the answer is faith is actually a gift of God. And if we look at things from a position of logic and reason, there's all kinds of reasons not to believe. The faith to believe is the gift from God that actually gives us the capacity to believe. It's not your intellectual ability that that suddenly stirs a heart of belief. It's that God himself reaches in by the power of his Holy Spirit and he touches you and you know it's true and you know it's real even when all of the evidence around you by logic and reason says something completely different. Last week, I interviewed my son, Britton, which is probably a really dangerous thing to do, but it was a beautiful conversation between a father and a son. And thanks to everybody who listened to that podcast and to the tons of people that responded to it. Uh, I, I got so much overwhelmingly positive feedback from that podcast. So I know a lot of really good conversations came out of that. And I pray a lot of life came out of that. But, you know, here's the deal. If you didn't hear the conversation, here, here it is in a nutshell. To say that my son Britton left the Christian faith a little bit or wandered or strayed from the path of Christian orthodoxy just a little bit would be kind of like saying that a nuclear bomb sort of makes a loud noise. Now, there's really no reason for him to have walked away except that God has given him the freedom to do so. That's a hard truth to realize. God's given us a tremendous amount of freedom in this life and has created scenarios in this world where we actually have the ability and the freedom to choose to reject him even if accepting him would be the easiest or most obvious thing in the world. But even if it does to you seem like it'd be the easiest, most obvious thing, it seems as though God has set it up to where he's given us scenarios that make it easy to reject him. He does that by not living up to our expectations. Not that he doesn't go above and beyond all we could ask or think. That's certainly the way he does. And all things do work together for good. And the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed in us. All those things are absolutely true. But God has never been concerned about maintaining his own reputation. You see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus. 
Jesus' own brothers don't even believe in him. It's a really interesting thought when you consider that. We brought that out in the podcast with Britain last week just a little bit, but ponder that for a moment. Jesus knows who he is by the age of 12. At age 30, he begins his earthly ministry. His own brothers, after he begins his ministry in John chapter 7, come to him and say, why are you hiding yourself if you want to be known by the entire world? Get out there and start doing some stuff. Basically, they've never actually seen him do anything to support the claim that he's the Son of God. You say, well, maybe he didn't tell anybody he was. I'm pretty sure living in that house, you would have heard about how Jesus was born. You would have heard about the, the story of the angel. You would have heard uh, the story of, of the shepherds. You would have understood the story of the wise men, the people who brought the gifts. Why did they bring those gifts? Why in the world did, did everybody go to Egypt for a while? What's going on with our family history here? People would have known these stories. Mary would have, of course, uh, told the rest of the children about these things because certainly she herself was convinced that all of this was absolutely true. She would have wanted the rest of the family to be on board with this. But they're not. Why? I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on when I play the message that I'm going to play for you. But aside from Jesus' brothers, even his disciples who saw the miracles and understood that there was something special about him, he didn't even live up to some of their expectations. Peter, for example, had told Jesus, hey, listen, everybody else may walk away, but I'll never walk away from you. His loyalty was absolutely certain, and his belief would never falter at all. Maybe you've thought this way about your own faith. But Jesus comes to Peter one day and says, Satan asked to sift you like wheat. If I'm Peter, I'm thinking, you said no, because we're friends, right? I mean, what are you even talking to the devil for? And yet, Jesus continues on, and he says, but I'm going to pray for you, and when you return, strengthen your brothers. I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but I want you to think about the two phrases Jesus just said there. When you return, well, that's restoration. Strengthen your brothers. That implies influence or leadership. So when Jesus looks at Peter in that moment, he doesn't see a person that's about to go on a journey of failure. He sees a restored leader. He sees a restored leader before Peter has even fallen. As a matter of fact, Peter's fall is actually going to be the facilitating catalyst by which he becomes the restored leader that is actually equipped to lead the church. It's, it's a beautiful story of the redemptive perspective of God. And it also demonstrates that God's not afraid of your journey. God's not afraid of your journey into a place of cursing denial. And, and that ought to actually give your heart some gladness here. Because many of us know people in that place. And we think that God may be mad at them. Oh, listen, no, he, he loves them. You can't ever be separated from the love of God. The Bible says no created thing can separate you from the love of God. Think of the list of created things. It's, it's long. But think of the list of uncreated things. There's only one, and that's God. He's the only one whose name would not be on that list. And that means that being separated from the love of God is up to God himself, which begs the question then, how good is he? He's as good as he wants to be. And, and that is really better than you and I could ever begin to think. So God has set up a system where we have the ability to make choices. Freedom is a terrifying idea. 
It's as if God has taken the pen and the paper upon which he's writing the story of his existence with man, his, his creation of man, and he's put it into our hands and told us to write a few chapters. And we can pretty much take it anywhere we want. That's a terrifying concept. It's a, it's a crazy idea when you stop and think about it in terms of a story and that God would put that much that much authority into our hands to write a story. But you know, even for those who believe in sovereignty 100% to the point where we have no free will, you have to admit that this life is a pretty big simulation of free will. Even if free will wasn't real, you know, God didn't force you to get up out of bed this morning. He didn't tell you which cup of coffee to, to, um, to make or to drink or which mug to choose in your morning ritual or routine or whatever. You're not listening to the voice of God in every single decision you make when you go to the grocery store. It certainly feels as though you and I have the ability to make some choices here. And, and it's as if God has given us that capacity to do it. This is how I get the sovereignty and free will people to actually play nicely together. I ask the, the sovereignty people, uh, does, does God have the ability to do anything? They say, of course, he's sovereign. I said, does he have the ability to delegate responsibility? Uh, now there's a long pause. Because if he delegates responsibility to somebody, that means he gives somebody the freedom to choose, which they may not necessarily believe in. And, and so, But ultimately, if he doesn't have that power, then he wouldn't be sovereign. So the answer absolutely must be yes, he can do anything. So he can delegate responsibility. And then to the free will people, I would say, do you believe God can delegate responsibility to you and still retain his sovereignty? Well, everybody at this point has to come to an agreement that that is absolutely true. Just like a father that delegates responsibility to his children but retains sovereignty within the house, God has given you and I freedom to make some choices, to write this chapter in your life. But here's the beauty of redemption, and that is he has the sole authority to write the final chapter in the story. And I got to tell you, I believe that final chapter is really, really good. Today I'm going to play something for you. Uh, it's a message that actually was recorded last week at a church called Restoration Christian Church in Sellersburg, Indiana, pastored by a dear friend of mine, Caleb Lay. I encourage you to stick with the podcast today and listen to this message. I know you're like, if I wanted to hear a sermon, I'd go to church. But I wanted to play this for you today because the feedback I got following this message is this wasn't just a message for a single church. This is a message for the body of Christ right now. It's a message that actually will, I believe, answer some of the questions of why in the world does God set things up where it looks like we have the opportunity not to believe? You know, it's like God needs a marketing team or something. And God's never really been concerned about marketing. That's why we have marketing teams in our churches, because it seems like God needs all the help he can get. I mean, really, he could he could put angels all over the sky. He could fill the entire world with a, enough sound of his voice to completely encompass the entire planet and give people a reason to believe. More of a reason than you and I ever could in our own human efforts. But what God instead has chosen to do is to work with us to work with you, to work with me. And he's brought us into a place where you and I actually have the, the ability to co-labor with him to bring about his plans and his purposes in the life of people by letting the glory of his goodness shine through us. It may seem like in this world, 
the glory of his goodness is hidden, hidden under a mountain of crazy circumstances right now. It's as though the election of the past season made a mockery out of the prophetic movement and the COVID situation that we've been going through in this pandemic that's covered the globe seems to be mocking the healing movement. Are both of those movements false? No, they're very real. Prophecy and healing, they're gifts of God to the body of Christ. Yet in the middle of all of our giftings, our gifts will be challenged. And that's what I'm going to deal with today in this message is stepping past barriers to unbelief, stepping past barriers that even seem like they're put there by God and letting the freedom of the gospel run into you. This is the Reckless Grace Podcast. My name is Bill Vanderbush. Hey, thanks for being here today. I'll be right back. What is quantum preaching? Bill Vanderbush wants to help you discover and develop your voice. Quantum preaching is a supernatural ability to connect with people where the revelation that's making your heart come alive becomes the very revelation that makes the listener's heart come alive. The future belongs to the storyteller, and the power of the story is the layers of revelation it contains. In this course, you will learn to become a master storyteller, no matter what age or background of the audience you are speaking to. Quantum Preaching is a 30-day video-on-demand course that you can do at your very own pace. Each video contains unique insights that will challenge you to become a better communicator. You'll get access to Bill's Sermon Vault, access to the Quantum Preaching Facebook group, influential interviews, revelation and preaching insights, and more. Go to quantumpreaching.com for more information. Back in February, when I did the Zoom with you guys, I preached a message that God has really been laying on my heart lately about, about the sound in your blood. The very first command that God ever gave Adam was to name the animals. In other words, to assign nature to the world by using your word, the power of your word. You're made in the image and likeness of God, and his word holds things together, right? Jesus said, my words to you are spirit and life. Made in his image and likeness, your words carry the power of the spirit and the life of heaven on them if you release that intentionally partner with the resonant frequency of heaven to release that. It can change the atmosphere around you. God came to Cain after Cain killed his brother Abel and said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Now the ground will no longer work for you. And so a curse, a generational curse, was actually released over Cain because of something that was said from the very core of Abel's being. We could say that Abel was justified in his judgment, even justified in his offense, because he was murdered. An innocent, righteous man was murdered for doing something good, for doing something righteous. But from that place of justified judgment, he released into the atmosphere something the earth responded to. And so the earth responded by releasing a curse over Cain that followed him all the days of his life. Then we leap forward to Hebrews chapter 12 that talks about that we have now come to Mount Zion and to Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, says, of the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's interesting because Jesus and Abel are a lot alike, but in one area they're different, and that's what their blood said. 
We know what Jesus' blood says because hanging on the cross, watching the people who are responsible for him dying, he looks at a creation that's murdering their own creator and says this phrase, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So the last act of forgiveness that Jesus releases from the cross is to forgive our ignorance, which is kind of amazing. So if you think about the difference between the blood, voices in the blood, by the way, people say, well, what is that? What is it, voice in your blood? It's, it's this. The Bible says life is in the blood. Life and death are also in the power of the tongue. Out of the abundance of the heart, which circulates the blood through your body, your mouth speaks. So you can tell what's in your blood by what comes out of your mouth. So when we release justified judgments and justified offense, it doesn't matter if it's, it's justified or not, judgment and offense, the earth is literally listening for the sound of your blood. So in 2020, we had 12 hurricanes that hit the coast of the United States of America. Did you know that? We have more weird weather that we've ever had in my lifetime. People say, well, it's the judgment of God. No, I don't think so. I think it's us. Why? Psalm 115.16 says, The heavens were made for God. The earth he has entrusted to the children of men. And we, even from a place maybe of justified judgment, are releasing offense, not just online, but through our voice. We're declaring a lot of stuff, just judgment out into the, into the world. And the crazy part is, is we don't realize how much power we actually have. Right? And so, um, so that was kind of the nature of that entire message. You can go back and listen to it, and there's a lot more details to it than that. Uh, Romans chapter 8 uh, tells us, Romans 8, 19 says that creation is literally eagerly awaiting, anxiously awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. So the earth knows who you are before you know who you are. God has put into the very fabric of this, this atmosphere a revelation of your identity. And so when we... Uh, partner with the sound of heaven, then suddenly we find ourselves like shifting the atmosphere all around us. Romans 8 uh, goes on to say that, that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In other words, creation did not sign up to obey you. It was commanded to by God. And goes on to say, in hope that creation itself would be freed from its slavery to corruption. In other words, even when we go into a corrupt state, because we're made in the image of God, we still carry weight and power in the sound of our words, and creation is still bound to obey you. It says, in hope that creation itself would be freed from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So as you and I discover the authority that we have, the power that we have, and the responsibility that we have to release the glory of God from here, then we'll partner with the blood of Jesus, not the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Abel released judgment and curse out into the atmosphere. What does the blood of Jesus do? He releases a generational grace. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and comes all the way down to Sellersburg, Indiana on this Sunday morning. It's amazing that generational grace never stops flowing. So today I want to give you a sequel to that message. Because that message is all about the sound we release. But the sound we release is more than just words. The spirit you carry has a sound, has a frequency to it. And it goes beyond what you can hear with your ears. Sometimes the most powerful 
exercise of authority and dominion that you can ever take is not in your sound, but it's in your silence. As I'm praying, saying, God, how do we move forward from 2020? All I can feel like is that the answer to bringing an end to this pandemic is in the posture of humility of the body of Christ. Something about humility is the way to move forward in this thing. Um, The Bible says that pride goes before a fall. It basically says the posture of, of momentum is completely derailed by arrogance, essentially. Any movement forward is completely derailed. We can't move forward when we flat on our face in the ground. But I tell you what, when we posture ourselves to humble ourselves, getting before God and saying, God, whatever... We, he, Jesus doesn't come back for a bridezilla, okay? He's coming back for a bride, not a bridezilla. That's the deal. Um, and there's something about the humility of the body of Christ that's got to be seen by the world. Because that's not what we've been good at putting on display. And so... Um, I got a question. This whole word came out of a question that came to me a while back uh, from a young person that just simply had read in the Bible where it talked about the devil being the God of this world, small g. And the question came out, how did the devil become the God of this world? And I thought, well, it's all the way back in the fall, of course. But I felt like the Lord was drawing my attention in the scriptures to go back and revisit the story of the fall. Now, this is something I've preached on and studied extensively, but it doesn't matter how many times you preach on something, you go back and you look at it again and you see something you've never seen before. There are things hidden, there's revelation hidden in the word of God that will not be released in, to you until you're ready to see it, okay? And sometimes things are released in a certain order. God just likes process. Not sure why he does that, but he just does. So in... The story of the fall, the way it kind of works is that uh, uh, God initially gave dominion to Adam. He told Adam, you're essentially in charge. You have dominion. You have authority. And so when the fall happens, Adam, Eve, and the serpent are the three players, characters in the play. And God shows up to address this trio about what has just gone wrong. He doesn't talk to Eve, and he doesn't talk to the serpent. He goes to the very first person he gave the authority to. He turns to Adam. And he essentially says, hey, what happened here? It's my paraphrase. Adam now has a choice. He can take responsibility. In other words, he can say, yeah, it was my fault. I'm responsible because I carry the authority that you delegated to me. And so he could take that responsibility based upon the authority that he has, but he doesn't do that. He goes, the woman you gave me, right? Now, when he does that, instead of taking responsibility with his words, speaking from his heart, he chooses to partner with judgment and blame. When he does that, the authority that was given to him passes to her. Now she carries what he had. God turns his attention from Adam to her. Why? Because she's carrying the authority. And he looks at her and says, what happened? She has the same opportunity. She can take responsibility, but this is what she does. The serpent tricked me. When she does this, she partners with judgment and blame. By the way, 
If you've ever partnered with judgment and blame intentionally in your life, you can always you can always sort of gauge your level of personal spiritual health by how much judgment you partner with because the more judgment we release into this world, the spiritually weaker we feel. It's really hard to partner with judgment and pray for the sick in the same, in the same service. Just hard to do. Uh, I don't know if you ever tried that or not. Don't try it. But if you ever want to feel true spiritual weakness, just get judgmental for a while. See what happens. Don't, but, you know. So she says, the serpent tricked me. Now God turns his attention not to Adam, not to Eve. Now he begins to talk to the serpent. Guess what the serpent does? Nothing. He says nothing. And in silence, essentially says, yeah, I'll take the responsibility. Thank you very much assumes the authority, and becomes the God of this world, small g. When I saw that, I suddenly realized, oh my goodness, just as there's authority in speech, there's also authority in silence. Now if we fast forward to Jesus entering into our story and stepping onto the stage, I want you to just kind of bookmark in the back of your mind what the serpent did to get the authority back in the garden. Because as we step forward, one of the questions that people often have is, how come God chose to show up in Christ the way he did? We talk about this story at Christmas and Easter, the incarnation, the advent, the the coming of Christ into the world, the fact that he's born in such a scandalous way, it looks like a complete scandal. It's a young girl claiming that she had this angelic encounter, and the Holy Spirit has literally impregnated her with the very Son of God, and Joseph's not even convinced until he has a meeting with an angel, and the angel basically says, yeah, she's telling the truth. But does anybody else believe her? Of course not. You and I wouldn't either. We'd think, man, she needs to be committed. Now, she, has, she ends up having this, having this child in a very, very unique place. And, and here's the reason I think that, that Jesus was born the way he was born and where he was born. I think God was completely going under the radar of the powers of darkness, Matter of fact, I think that's why the angelic hosts uh, do the biggest choreographed choir, choir concert in history for a handful of shepherds in the middle of the night. I don't think there was any demons anywhere around when Jesus was born. See, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not like God. He's a single entity. He can only be in one place at one time. The only way that he can actually know what's going on with us is through demonic reconnaissance. There's no way that he can be everywhere at once. Why would he have been in Bethlehem that night? He wouldn't have thought anything of it. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that the the people who crucified Jesus, the religious and political authorities, it says if they had known who Jesus was, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. How were they being directed? They were being directed by demonic influence, by satanic influence. You'd say, Bill, did, did, did Satan know who Jesus was? I don't think so. I don't think so. When did he figure it out? Well, I think he might have started getting a bit of a hint or a clue when Jesus went and got baptized by John. But up until that moment, think about how Jesus is living. He's so off the radar, completely off the grid, 
that not even his own brothers, his little brothers growing up in his house, Mary's other kids, not even his siblings believed he was the son of God. And think about it. Ponder, James, he writes the book of James, and he, he is, uh, he's not shown to be a believer until after the resurrection. But John 7 says that James and the rest of the brothers, they didn't even believe in Jesus. As a matter of fact, even after Jesus starts his ministry, they mock him at one point because Jesus won't go to Judea. And they said, why don't you go to Judea? In other words, why don't, you, why don't you show yourself to the world? If this is really who you are, do something. Stop being so secretive about everything you're doing. If you want, you, in other words, you're really bad at marketing, Jesus. Jesus doesn't seem to pay them any attention. He's got a plan. He's moving. He knows what he's doing. But I want you to think about how long you would have Jesus in your, in your house as your big brother for 30 years before he leaves home and decides to start the ministry. You're living in the house. Let's say you're James. Ponder this with me. Just, just meditate on this for a minute. It's just mind-blowing when you think about it. You're Jesus' little brother. And when you're growing up, you're hearing the stories. The angel came. Mom says, the angel says that my big brother, Jesus, is the son of God. So your eyes, as a child, may be like really, really wide, waiting for him to do something sort of son of God-ish. <laughs> what does he do? Nothing. Why would you not believe? Well, I got a couple of hints. You know, in 30 years, some stuff can happen. Maybe you get hurt. Maybe somebody who's close to you gets sick and they're dying. Your big brother is the son of God. You look at him to do something, and he doesn't do anything. There's got to be a reason why Jesus' brothers didn't believe him. Spending 30 years in Jesus' house and watching to look for something some sign, and you see nothing. Matter of fact, when Jesus goes home uh, to his hometown, it says that he could do no mighty miracle there because of their unbelief. In other words, they're looking at him going, wait a minute, we know this guy. That tells us even his hometown people never saw him do anything miraculous for 30 years. So when he comes back home and now all of a sudden he wants to heal the sick and do all this stuff, and, and they shut it, the whole thing down. Why? He wasn't doing anything growing up. The only hint of anything miraculous we know that he could do comes from Mary saying to the people at the wedding where Jesus is now called upon to make wine for drunk people, which is a really bad way to start a ministry, by the way. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, these people are out of wine. Do something about it. That's what she demands of him. That's the only hint that they knew of anything that he could do miraculous. Like, why would she think that he could do that unless he had maybe done it at home? Yeah, I know he's the son of God. We're not really sure what else he can do, but he makes a mean Merlot. I mean, <laughs> spice up the meal, Jesus. I mean, like, I don't know what, what is up with this guy who is the son of God. He knows who he is, by the way, from the age of 12. 
I mean, I, I don't know if you catch this, but this is really, I, I want to I just give this to you a little bit this morning because I think there are people in here who vacillate throughout the course of your Christian life between faith and doubt. When things are going great, you believe, and when things aren't going great, you don't believe, and you feel condemnation when you don't believe and when you doubt. I want to tell you, you're not alone, and sometimes doubt makes sense because sometimes God doesn't live up to your expectations. It doesn't make him any less good certainly doesn't make him any less true. People in the scriptures had this problem. Jesus' own brothers had this problem. John the Baptist had this problem. John the Baptist, and, and if you want to turn here with me, turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, I just want to read what John says. Verse 29. Next day, Jesus, he saw Jesus, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming and he said... John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man with higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I didn't recognize him so that he might be manifested to Israel. I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and remaining upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Does John sound pretty sure? Yeah, he does. But John is actually going to go to prison. And while he's in prison, cousin Jesus who came to set prisoners and captives free, isn't going to show up and let him out. And John, who just testified Jesus is the Son of God, sitting in prison, now in the middle of circumstances that seem to cause him to doubt, calls a couple of his disciples to him and says to his disciples, I got an assignment for you. Go find Jesus and ask him a question. Are you the one, or should we look for another? So even John, who knew Jesus was the Son of God, came to a place of questioning both his identity and his goodness. Have you been there? A lot of people are there right now. There's a lot of people in the world right now who are going through a radical deconstruction of faith because there's circumstances happening in this earth and they feel as though God has just let go. I talk to him all the time and I'm starting to find in the scriptures that some of the heroes of faith John the Baptist, James, the brother of Jesus, went through their own doubts and they were literally living with him present with them. See, doubt is not necessarily, it's not like a, a, a disease that you hold on to and go, okay, I'm the only one that has this. When I come to church, everybody else looks like they're full of faith, but I've got doubts. I'm telling you, you're in good company with some really powerful people. Just are. I just want to remove all the condemnation of doubt off of you. Super important that you catch this. See, even in the, midst of, in the midst of just doing life, sometimes we stumble across truth 
and we don't even realize how powerful the truth is. John the Baptist is baptizing people because he knows he's waiting for that moment when the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove and rests on somebody. That's what he's told by God. And so he's baptizing people going, are you the Messiah? Nope. You? Nope. Not you. Moving on. He's just... John has basically invented baptism, by the way. This is an ordinance of the church now that we, we do. There was nothing like this before. John has no priestly authority to do any of this stuff. He sees a body of water. He hears a word from God. And then he says to people, come on down, repent and be baptized. Boom, boom. But what he's doing is he's looking for the Messiah. Here's the crazy part. He knows who the Messiah is. He's known his whole life. His mother Elizabeth knew. When John heard the story of Jesus' incarnation, when Elizabeth heard it, John, in her womb, was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, and leapt in her womb. So the very first instance of somebody in the New Testament being filled with the Holy Spirit was John the Baptist in utero. Pretty amazing. John knew who Jesus was. What is he doing dunking people looking for the one he already knows? Maybe he's doing the very thing that we do with our works, trying to provoke Jesus to do something we want him to do. Jesus comes over the hill. He crests over the shores of the Jordan, the bank of the Jordan, and as he's coming down to the water, John says perhaps the most astonishing words that have ever been spoken by a human being. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about this phrase with me. Behold, in other words, everybody look. Lamb is sacrificial. It's sacrificing language. Why do we sacrifice? For sin. Who needs to sacrifice? Sinners. Behold the Lamb of God. What? Why is God, who's never sinned, sacrificing? And on top of that, if God is going to bring a sacrifice for sin, he's not going to bring a person because God doesn't believe in human sacrifice. Everything John is saying, by the way, is really offensive. Look, this person is the sacrifice not given by God because the Bible says in Colossians 2.9, it says that in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead, that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lived in a body. goes on to say, and in him you have been made complete. See, Jesus was the embodiment of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17, God's in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So when John sees Jesus, these words spill out of his mouth. Behold the sacrifice of God himself. Could John have possibly known what he was just saying? Like, I wonder if John went, what did I just say? Behold the sacrifice of God who's giving himself as a sacrifice and the ramifications of God sacrificing himself for us is that he removes 
the sin of the worthy, the righteous, the ones who do it right. Behold the sacrifice of God himself that takes away the sin of the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, bringing us back to this place of union with himself. And and this is the way he did it, by not counting our transgressions against us. It's not like God looked through humanity and looked for somebody who wasn't sinning and said, well, I'm going to reconcile them. No, he looked at a humanity that was filled with sin and said, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to allow their sins to be put in their account. So from heaven's perspective, when you jump on your, your... your app to check your sin balance in heaven's bank account, it's zero. The same as Jesus. What? (laughs) What was John thinking when he said that? Behold, the sacrifice of God himself who takes away the sin of the world, the cosmos. What is happening right now, John must have been thinking, and I know that this is the Son of God, but then even John, who's absolutely sure nothing will ever shake his faith again when something happens that threatens to shake his faith, John goes, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe it's not right. We need to ask him, are you really the one? Or should we look somewhere else? And I think there's two reasons why John asked. One of two reasons. One is maybe John literally was questioning Jesus' identity, whether he actually got the right one. But the other one maybe was that he knew Jesus was the Son of God, and he was absolutely convinced, but Jesus wasn't doing what he wanted him to do. And I think maybe the second part is the one that most of us can align with. In other words, we look at the gospel, we know God's touched our lives, but then something happens, a circumstance takes place in our lives that causes us to question not so much the identity of God, but the goodness of God. And this is the danger, by the way, of sin. Sin will actually warp your perception of the goodness of God. Sin doesn't change how God feels about you because nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not even Nothing created can separate you from the love of God. Are you created? Yes. So not even you can separate you from the love of God. But here's what sin does. It actually warps your perception of the goodness of God. That's why when Adam and Eve sinned against God, you know, the first thing they did, they hid Why? God had never done anything mean before. He hadn't destroyed anything before. He hadn't punished anybody before. God was really, really nice until Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, they hid from a God that was actually trying to redeem them. And this is what happens when we sin. When we sin, we question the goodness of God, and suddenly we start to hide from a God who's just trying to redeem, reconcile, and rescue us. That's why sin is so dangerous. After, right after this Holy Spirit moment with Jesus in the river, the devil takes Jesus out into the wilderness. Now, here's, I I think this is what happened. I think that there were a couple of demons, probably, you know, some lower rung rung demons 
And they were probably assigned to, you know, the weird guy, you know, that lives in the desert and is baptizing people. Drawing a crowd. It's kind of getting to be a big deal. So a couple of demons are assigned out there. I figure probably one day they're just kind of hanging out, and all of a sudden here comes Jesus. John says what he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and the demons probably go, whoa, we got to report this. And immediately here comes the devil, and he's like, seriously, this guy? This guy again? You know, we'll figure it out. So the devil goes with Jesus out into the wilderness, and now the devil starts to ask him some questions. And here's the questions the devil asks. If you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. What is the devil doing? Listen, understand that the only person confused about Jesus' identity here is the devil. He's the only one in the dark. He's not getting Jesus to question his own identity. Jesus is fully aware of who he is. The devil's trying to figure it out. Like, who are you? If you're the son of God, do this. Okay, maybe you're, maybe you're ambitious for kingdoms. All the kingdoms of the world, I'll give them to you. You just bow down and worship me, for they have been handed to me. That was true. When did it happen? All the way back in the garden. He assumed authority just by taking responsibility. Jesus responds to the devil over and over again with this phrase. It is written over and over again. What does Jesus do? He doesn't argue with the devil. He takes the devil on a Bible study. And what does the devil do? The same thing everybody does when we do a Bible study. He gets bored and he leaves. <laughs> Finally, the devil's like, I'm out. I'm tapping out. This guy's nobody. All this guy does is quote scripture. He's nobody. And the devil moves on. I think this is the reason why when Jesus healed somebody, he said, don't tell anybody. Don't talk about this. What was Jesus doing? He was staying under the radar, but eventually he can't stay under the radar for very long. He's healed too many people. He's opened blind eyes. Lame are walking and leaping, praising God. Dead people are coming back to life. What's happening now? Jesus has really he put himself on the map, and now the religious and political leaders, they've got Jesus in front of them. And motivated, moved by satanic influence, this is what they start to say. You say you're the son of God. Is that true? You claim God as your father. What about that? You know that can get you killed, right? You understand that's heresy, right? Is this true? He's not saying anything. Why is he not saying anything? I don't know. Hit him. Smack him around. Let's see if he responds. Slap him. They punch him. They pluck his beard out. And the Bible says, like a lamb Led to the slaughter. Doesn't open his mouth. Why doesn't he defend himself? Oh, he knows exactly what he's doing. Because back in the garden, back in the garden when God says to Adam, what happened? Adam won't take responsibility. 
Eve won't take responsibility. The devil stays silent, exercises authority, and becomes the self-proclaimed God of this world and wreaks havoc on the planet. And now those same demonically infused entities being controlled by the quote-unquote God of this world are now standing with the Son of God before them and saying, is this true? And instead of saying something, he just stays silent. And in silence, he exercised authority and dominion and took all of the authority back. Takes that authority, thank you very much, to the cross and starts releasing declarations from the cross over humanity. Up until this moment, by the way, Jesus has just been teaching, preaching, healing the sick, going to the Jews. Now, with the authority that came from just silently assuming the responsibility that they're declaring over him, hanging on the cross, he starts making declarations over humanity. Father, forgive them for their ignorance. They don't even know what they're doing. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He gives his own life. Nobody takes it from him, dies, goes into hell, takes the keys of death and hell, raises from the dead in resurrection power and newness of life, and looks at you and me and goes, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But he doesn't stop there. He looks at you and I and goes, now you go. That phrase returns us to an empowered existence, returns us to a place of of rightful authority in this earth. The devil no longer is the God of this world except in his own twisted mind. Now you and I carry authority and dominion to walk through this earth to literally with our voice release the sound of heaven. But there will be times, let me tell you something, there will be times when your greatest authority will not be released in your sound, it will be released in your silence. Now I can't tell you when those moments are. I feel so strongly about it. Moving forward from this season, humility has got to be the thing that grips us as the body of Christ, God has been teaching me so many things. I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness, look what's going on in the world. It's, it begins to attribute to the devil a greater authority than he actually has, which is none. Makes us feel like we're dealing with a really strong devil. When in fact, I think everything that's going wrong in the earth, you can actually trace back to us. Let me explain. I got really upset at masks one day. Bothered me. I didn't like them wear a mask for like eight, nine hours in an airplane airport. After a while, you're just like, it's not cool. And I felt the Lord say to me, why are you so upset about masks, Bill? You've been wearing them for years. I was like, what? Yeah, and suddenly I had this picture. Everywhere I'd gone last year, on the sign, on the, uh, the church door, in the, uh, in the church door, there was a sign that was posted on there, must have mask to enter. And I felt the Lord say, see that sign? That's not new. That's been hanging there in the spirit for years. People don't get, get real when they come to church. And what is God calling us to? I'm, I'm looking around at a masked culture, and I'm going, oh, I get it. 
This is a result of us failing to be real and transparent before each other and before God because we're so scared about the judgment of each other because judgment's what we become famous for. That, that led me to something else that bothered me, and that was cancel culture. And suddenly, I felt like the Lord said, why are you upset about that? And it, suddenly, it dawned on me. Oh, my God, we, we invented that. We invented cancel culture. I thought about all the people over the years that I had in the back of my mind because of the things they've done, behaviors that they had, and things they couldn't get under control. In my mind, I thought, I can't receive from them anymore. They're disqualified from ministry. I thought, oh my goodness, we are living with the fruit of a culture that we've actually produced. We're living with the physical manifestations of spiritual reality that actually came from the fact that we don't realize how much authority we actually carry and what we have actually practiced in the confines of our churches has actually spilled out now into the world. And then, and this was the big one. Oh my goodness, this one got me. I started hearing a particular kind of language. I'll tell, what, I'll tell you what it is in a second. I said to a dear friend of mine uh, one day, he's kind of a father in the faith, and I said, uh, I said man, I'm, this, this next generation just bugs me so bad. This next generation that feels like they're completely dead to the gospel. They have no interest in the things of God. And um, this guy says, uh, I said, I feel like we're praying for awakening. It's like we want an awakening, a third great awakening in this land. And, and, and I'm, I'm praying for this. And, and this guy says, so um, decides to take me on a Bible study. And uh, felt a little insulting, but it became incredibly powerful. He said, you remember when Jesus was walking along one day and a woman came up behind him and touched the hem of his garment and she had an issue? Uh, and I said, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Of course, remember that story. He said, um, do, you, do you remember in the story where Jesus was going? And I thought about it and I realized he was going to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. So I said that. He's going to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. He said, yeah. He was wanting to bring restoration and, and uh, uh, reformation and resurrection to the next generation. And he would have gotten there sooner, but he was delayed by somebody from the older generation that had an issue in her blood. Jesus turns and he deals with it. And when the delay is done, he moves on. When he finally gets there, the people are all standing around going, forget it, it's too late, she's dead. And Jesus says what? She's not dead. She's just asleep. I am here to woke her. That was the thing that was bugging me the most. Listening to all this quote-unquote woke language from the next generation. So I'm sitting there listening to him and going, this is, this is crazy stuff. My friend says to me, he says, what was Jesus doing in this story? His intention was not to declare the next generation dead, but just to sleep. And who was bringing the awakening? He was. Again, he would have gotten there sooner, but the older generation had issues in their blood. Jesus, first thing he does is send all the mockers out of the room. 
Once all the mockers leave, by the way, mockery, a whole a spirit of mockery, which is pervasive in the church for some reason, a spirit of mockery will actually disqualify you from being in the room when God moves, right? It doesn't disqualify you from the presence of the Lord, or the grace of God, or the love of God, but pretty sure you probably won't get to be in the room when he moves. So Jesus removes all the mockers out, says, you guys can move on, pulls the parents in, Three disciples, says, little girl, arise. When she gets up, the very first thing Jesus says is give her something to eat. And this is what I believe God is doing in this day. He's looking at this next generation. We're crying out for an awakening, and he's put seeds of reformational woke language into their spirit. What what happens when you hear a young person say something about being woke? It's actually a term of radical vulnerability because you're actually saying, I'm transitioning from one state to another. And what I'm looking for is I am looking for a way to move from this state of being asleep to being awakened. And the next generation is looking at the church and saying, is our awakening here? And because we're offended by the language that they're using and the things that they're saying, and this, in this transitional state, we're not prepared to say, yes, his name is Jesus, and if we introduce you to him, you will have the awakening that you've been looking for. Not only that, but the great awakening perhaps is in their generation, but we've been praying for it. What if what we have been praying for is a revival and a movement in this country is actually coming to the next generation and it would come sooner, except we got some issues in our blood to deal with? Judgment and offense. So I began to realize what God was teaching me in these radical moments of teaching was there's a power and authority that you carry, Bill. There's a power and authority that you carry, church. There is so much weight on your words, on your sound, on the spirit that you carry, that in your sound and in your silence, you exercise authority across the board. And when you begin to realize that, you'll start taking that role very, very seriously. Start realizing, I have got to stop partnering with offense and judgment. Because when you do, it's like spiritually, it just causes us to shrivel up inside. I think God is calling us to move forward as a body of Christ that is just soaked in the humility of, of the adoration of his face. I loved this morning when we were talking about singing about, I don't know if you guys like have an, a closing song to do today, but I would love to hear that one on the throne that you guys did this morning, the very first one. Again, is that possible to even do again, to close out today? That, this song right here speaks so strongly to me about the, the posture of our own heart before God that maybe, maybe you've been in a place this year where it's like you've looked at circumstances in this life and you're going, oh my goodness, I, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe this faith in Jesus thing, maybe it's not real. Maybe I, maybe I picked the wrong belief system. He's not doing what I want him to do. And then in rebellious defiance, we grab a hold of judgment, sometimes justified judgment, and we start speaking it out. We start typing it out. We start writing it out. Next thing you know, we're finding ourselves filled with judgment. People are coming around you, and they're applauding you and cheering you on. It's easy to do, by the way. Easy to do. I feel like God is doing this this day and he's calling the body of Christ back to a posture of humility and the humility I think he's looking for 
is to return to that adoration of his throne, the majesty, the majesty of his, of his royalty. There's something about, he, listen, he's my father, he's my papa, he's my dad, he's my Abba. But he's also king. He's not just my savior, he's my Lord. I feel like there's this call to just, kind of back to that posture of surrender to the lordship of, of, of my king. In this time right now, I said last year when I was here that God's taken down the idol of our certainty. And what has happened in this last year is more of the body of Christ is postured and positioned right now to say yes to the voice of Jesus than at any other time in my life. Our certainties, our plans, our, our five, ten-year plans that had us so feeling responsible. We're good Americans. We're responsible with our money. We're responsible with our time. We have everything planned out years and years ahead, and we feel like that's being responsible. But for many of us, that, that posture made it impossible for you to say yes to the Lord if he just moved your agenda one way or another. But one of the things that had to happen for us to actually walk in true unity is for us to have our certainties completely taken away. Now, what is unity, you say? I believe, by the way, unity is the most damaging message to the kingdom of darkness that you can preach. Unity is not agreement. Listen to what I'm saying. Unity is not agreement. If you think unity is agreement, then you'll read the verse about God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and you say, okay, and now he's committed to us the same ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is unity. Unity is agreement. That means my entire mission in life is to argue people into what I think. And you do that, and essentially what you're doing is just battling with one another. I was praying about this one day, and I knew that God was calling me to message on unity, and I'm thinking, God, I, I, I don't know how to preach a message on unity, because it, how do I preach? Agreement's powerful, but, and I felt the Lord say, you misdefined it, Bill. It's, it's not agreement. I realized unity is not when I agree with you. It's not when you agree with me. Unity is when I'm willing to lay my life down for you, whether you agree with me or not. Think about this. This is how Christ reconciled us back to himself. Is Jesus Christ literally laid his life down in sacrificial compassion for a world that was completely in disagreement with him. And the result of one person walking in that level of sacrificial compassion to lay down their life was that we got reconciled back to the Father. Now he's given us the exact same ministry, but because we've, we've wrongly defined unity, we've been trying to preach agreement. When in reality, what we've got to do is come back to that posture, getting before his face, before his, before his throne, in that place of sacrificial surrender, finding his heart of sacrificial compassion moving through us to where now he can like direct our life, move our steps. He can, he can shake my world up, and now I can stop everything and go, I got nothing to lose. I can say yes to you. And if you want me to make a turn and go over there and minister to that person at the drop of had I can do it now I'm in a position where oh I can do this that 
That's how we'll find ourselves ministering to this world is when we're willing to lay our lives down in sacrificial compassion for people who don't even agree with us. Thank you so much for your love and support. You make it possible for Bill and I to keep this message of Jesus Christ and our union with Him and our union with others going around the world. We're thankful for every open door, not only in the United States, but in places like Ireland, England, Scotland, France, Germany, and so many more. We're always encouraged as we find fires of God burning in each place we go. We value your prayers more than you can imagine. If you feel compelled to partner with us, go to BillVanderbush.com. And we would love to hear from you. If you'd like to write a letter, please send that to Faith Mountain Ministries, P.O. Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. That's Faith Mountain Ministries, P.O. Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258.